We are looking at John chapter 11, verses 28 through 46 this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, grab one out of the pew there in front of you. Uh, One of the pockets in the back of one of the seats there, you'll find a Bible. That's on page 844, John chapter 11. Page 844, if you don't own a Bible of your own back at your home, um, we would love to give that Bible to you as a gift this morning, that one that you found in the back of the seat there. Um, Please take that as a gift from us so you can have a copy of God's Word. John chapter 11, verses 28 through 46, the resurrection of Lazarus. You may wonder why uh, we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of John this Palm Sunday, and it is Palm Sunday, and that's so great that we're singing songs and uh, you know, pointing our attention to that uh, truth. Uh, it seems that studying the resurrection of Lazarus the week before we focus in on the resurrection of Jesus is eminently appropriate. Uh, listening to the Old Testament scripture reading this morning, notice the dual nature of what's being said in Zechariah 9, 9 there. Listen to it again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation in, uh, is he, humble though, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, notice he is the king. He is full of righteousness and he is the one who has salvation, yet he is humble, riding on a colt. As we think about the entrance of Jesus into the city And the reaction of the people who lauded him there, we also consider the fact that his renown must have been known. The crowning moment up until his own resurrection indeed is the resurrection of Lazarus that we study together today. And so as this um, renown goes forth from Jesus' earthly ministry, as people hear about him healing a blind man, uh, making the lame to walk, healing the sick, and now this uh, sort of a crowning sign before his own resurrection, the resurrection of his good f- friend Lazarus. Uh, perhaps the, um, the scuttlebutt that's going on around is, uh, could this be the king of Zechariah 9.9? Could this be the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one? We will see that there are two responses to Jesus' raising of Lazarus, the latter of which leads directly to his death. But let us see how the resurrection of Lazarus sets up Jesus as the God-man who himself will be resurrected this morning. So if you're able to, would you please stand with me just one more time this morning as I read the Word of God aloud and as you follow along in the text. I'm going to start in John chapter 11 and verse 25 and then just read down to verse 36 as a part of our text this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She, that is Martha, said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Who is coming into the world. When she has said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who, had, who were there uh, with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You may be seated. That is the word of God in the New Testament reading. May it be a blessing both in the Old and New Testament reading this morning. And would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, we believe in your Holy Spirit, his co-equality in eternity with you, of one essence, undivided in the Godhead, and yet we believe that in his ministry, he is dwelling within those of us who have had faith in you, and he is able to by his ministry within us, illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding of the truths that we studied together this morning to both convict and comfort and to lead us into all righteousness and truth. And so we pray for that this morning. And yet we also pray that his convicting power as he goes throughout the world and convicts of sin and righteousness would also be upon those who do not know you who are in our midst. And Lord, we pray that those who do not know you would come to know you this morning. We pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, who as of yet have been unable to gather with us on Sunday mornings. And we pray as they watch in this morning uh, to this time in your word. And we pray that their hearts have already been blessed, that they would be further blessed as well. We miss them, Lord. Bring them back to us soon. Now, Lord, I pray that you would humble me and get me out of the way. May only the face of Jesus shine in our hearts this morning. We pray in his precious name. Amen. The main point this morning is this, and you see this written for you on the back of your bulletin, or if you are viewing from home, you should have gotten an email with this outline. Jesus shows that he is truly human and truly God as he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus shows that he is truly human and truly God as he raises Lazarus from the dead. I want us to see this morning two uh, movements of Jesus that put on display who he is eternally and in the incarnation. Two movements of Jesus that put on display who he is eternally and in the incarnation. The first we see is in verses 28 through 37. Jesus interacts with Mary and displays human emotion. Jesus interacts with Mary and displays human emotion. Even in stating these two realities of Jesus as we will in this sermon, I want to be so careful to not bifurcate the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We are compelled by Scripture and the distillation of its theology to show that the eternal Son of God is just that, that He is the eternal Son of God, eternally the Son, and yet that in the incarnation He adds a human nature to Himself, thus putting on humanity. And it is this latter that we see on display first. To get the context of the current passage, we remind ourselves of of what has just come previously. It is Martha who greets Jesus first, and she is also the first to bring up that if he had been there, Lazarus would not have died. It is also her confession that we zoom in on to show that what it is that she believes concerning him, where we first see Jesus proclaiming, In the verses that we read just previously, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, this is verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? To which Mary confesses that she indeed believes that he is the coming Messiah. So after this great confession of uh, Martha, uh, that um, we see her then going to call Mary in verse 28. And in the following verses, we see Jesus interact with Mary and display human emotion. We first see that Jesus does not move from where he is. But it is Martha who goes to call for Mary. Again, verses 28 through 30. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And perhaps as you read this, you wonder what the significance of this might be. Um, we uh, also uh, see that there's a crowd mourning with Mary, and that they're, uh, they are now joining her in their walk to Jesus. Um, the, the significance of this seems to be that Jesus does not want to move from the spot where he is going to perform this sign in order that people might believe in him. He calls Martha to himself. He calls Mary to himself to the, to the scene where this miraculous sign is going to take place. And Jesus knows well the tradition of the Jewish uh, people. He knows well the tradition of a, a week of mourning and then, uh, that's intense and then a, a month of mourning afterwards. And he knows this intensity will, will bring itself to the place where Lazarus is uh, to be, or where he is to be raised, certainly, but where he is buried currently. And we see this crowd gathering. And this is so important for what we are about to see Jesus do here. We now see a second instance of belief regarding the ability of Jesus to save Lazarus. In verse 32, when Mary had come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And here is where we are given a view of Jesus' true humanity in verse 33. Uh, This is an echo, is it not, of what Martha has already said to Jesus. Mary comes and says the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. They knew the power of Jesus to heal the sick, the ones who are even on the doorway of death. And so this statement is not out of step, but it is out of step, as it were, with what Jesus is seeking to do and show here, as we'll see in just a moment. But here is where we are exposed and and where it is put on display. Jesus' true humanity. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her Weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and in his spirit he was greatly 
trouble. What does this mean and what does it indicate? We must, in our adherence to a biblically informed theology and also in accordance with what we would say Nicene and Chalcedonian orthodoxy, understand that when the eternal Son united himself to a truly human nature, that he is one person comprised of two natures having two wills. So as we uh, sort of get some insight into the incarnation here yet again, we must be reminded of what the theology the Bible gives us that has been distilled into creeds and confessions for us. Let me quote from the London Baptist Confession, the second London Baptist Confession. Listen to what it says. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made. You can hear echoes of the songs we sang this morning, can't you? He has made, did when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it. Let me just pause for a moment. If Jesus fell as a boy and scraped his knee, it would have hurt. He is truly human, yet truly eternally God. So he takes upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. So important for us to understand. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah. And in the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That is a blessed distillation of theology for us in which we ought to rejoice because without these truths... We cannot be saved. So let me just read to you once again what we call the hypostatic union here from the Second London Confession. Listen to it again. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The only mediator between God and man. And we understand that hypostatic union perfectly, right? No. We rejoice in it. We believe it because it's what the Bible teaches us. But it is a matter of faith. It's not a matter of blind faith. But it is a matter of faith. So Christ in His incarnation is two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, inseparably joined in one person, very God and very man. So what we are witnessing here is this reality. His emotion is a part of His incarnation. His emotion is a part of His incarnation. The eternal triune God is not given to changes of emotion, no matter what modern theologians might say. God is. God is all that He is eternally. The triune God is who He is and does not change. But here we see in the taking on of humanity in Christ, the God-man, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. This is in His humanity. 
What does it mean that he is deeply moved and greatly troubled? Well, one great commentator of our day, uh, D.A. Carson, submits that it is likely better to translate this as he was outraged in, in spirit and troubled. Carson goes on to say his inward reaction was anger or outrage or indignation. John adds that he was troubled, the same strong verb used in John 12, 27 and 13, 21. It is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. The text is enough of a hard saying that some ancient authorities soften it by introducing an as in here. He was troubled in spirit as once, as one who is outraged. Carson then asks, if this is the emotion, I think it's right. I think it's right for us to understand this as outrage and being troubled. At what is Jesus outraged? Some think that Jesus is moved by their grief and is consequently angry with the sin, sickness, and death in this fallen world that wreaks so much havoc and generates so much sorrow. Others think that it is the anger directed at the unbelief itself, the unbelief of the people The men and women before him who were grieving like pagans, like the rest of men who have no hope, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Profound grief at such a bereavement is natural enough. Grief that degenerates to despair that pours out its loss as if there were no resurrection is an implicit denial of that resurrection. End quote from D.A. Carson. And so Jesus, as he begins to have emotion, human emotion about this, this this grief and sorrow and outrage at death and sin and unbelief asks, where is the tomb? Where has he been laid? Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Again, we might take Jesus's weeping here where it says Jesus wept. Very popular verse with young children in Awana. Easiest one to learn. But we might take this idea of him weeping as a compassionate response, but commentators, Carson included again, think it's best to understand this as a response of of grief and sorrow and disturbance over sin, death, and unbelief. Jesus is not grieving over Lazarus. He's about to raise him from the dead. He's already made that statement. In fact, he he actually responds to Martha here, or yeah, Martha here in a minute. Don't you understand what I'm doing here for the glory of God? Listen, I'm not saying that Jesus never had empathy or sympathy or never wept tears of emotion like we do in certain ways, but this is not the place where he does that. He's not grieving over Lazarus. He's about to Raise him from the dead. And by this, again, I'm not saying that Jesus did not show emotion, but it is not the emotion usually ascribed in this instance. There is a grief and a righteous anger against sin and death and unbelief here. And to this, uh, and, and to this the crowd wonders about his love for Lazarus. See how he loved him, they say in verse 36. And others go to the fallback at this point. If he had been here, would he not have been able to save this man from Death. Do you recall Jesus' own words at the beginning of our study of John chapter 11? Do you recall that? He says, I am not going in order that he essentially might die so that you can see the greater glory of God. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. Of this, John Christus, great 
Early church father says, not even amid calamities did they, the crowd, relax their wickedness. He sees their response as wickedness. Yet what he was about to do was a thing far more wonderful. For to drive away death when it hath come and conquered is far more than to say it when it's coming on. For Jesus to have healed Lazarus before he died was something that Jesus had already done. This is for the greater glory of God. Continuing with Christism here. They therefore slander him by their very points through which they ought to have marveled at his power. They allow for the time that he opened the eyes of the blind. And when they ought to have admired him on the account of that miracle, they, by means of this latter case, cast a slur upon it as though it had not even taken place. And not from this only are they shown to be all corrupt, but because when he had not yet come, nor exhibited any action, they prevent him with their accusations without waiting to the end of the matter. Seest thou how corrupt was their judgment? Jesus has indeed miraculously made a man who was blind from birth see, and yet what, is he, what, he, what he's about to do is greater. And in the midst of this, we do see, though, his true humanity. He is truly God and truly man. And his emotion is part and parcel of that humanity. It is this same God-man who enters the city in the day shortly after this event as the one who is a king yet rides humbly on a donkey. His humility, in fact, is seen in his humanity. His humility is seen in his incarnation, for in being humbled, he found himself in the likeness of man, and in so being found, he humbled himself to the point of death, even a humiliating death on the cross, is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. But he is indeed the king, full of righteousness and salvation. And for this to be true, he must also not only be truly human, but also truly divine. And we see this in our second point. We see a display of Jesus' true humanity in his interaction with Martha and Mary. He does grieve and has a righteous anger against sin and death. But he does also display his humanity as he interacts with the Father and displays divine prerogative. Jesus, secondly, interacts with the Father and displays divine prerogative in verses 38 through 46. Look first with me at verses 38 through 40. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Here we observe the scene as Jesus approaches the tomb where Lazarus lay. The resolve of the Lord Jesus here is so encouraging, is it not, as he has sort of built us up in the text as the, as the, uh, the author John builds us up the, as the Holy Spirit kind of builds us up to this moment where Jesus says, where is the body? And here he says, take away the stone. There is no going back if the stone is rolled away. There is no 
going back if the stone is rolled away. Because as Martha reminds Jesus, there is a stench of death behind that stone. You cannot roll back the stench of death and decay once you roll the stone away. You cannot roll back the stench of death and decay once you roll the stone away. Some of you have unfortunately smelled that smell and it is not something you can ever forget. For some it is enough to have seen a family member die or perhaps have them die in your arms. I've been in the presence of death. In the presence of the smells of death, not so much in the presence of the smell of decay. But what John, through the Holy Spirit, shows us is that this is a real death. This is a real death. This is not a faked scene of resurrection. Lazarus is dead, and Jesus is grieved at the death and the sin that caused the death from the very beginning, which is the garden. Sin and death were not a part of Eden. Though sin and death were prospective, there was the possibility of life and of death in the garden. The tree of life was there, and yet so was the tree of testing, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it was upon the promise of the serpent, Satan himself, that Adam and Eve took of the tree of testing and failed. And thus sin and death came into the world, which Paul says in Romans is evidenced by death itself. It doesn't take the law to show that sin produces death because all men die, but the law leads us to a certainty of that. Here is a real life depiction of the reality before the eyes of those whom Jesus loved, Mary and Martha, and the reality of it for Jesus and his human experience as he smells the death and decay of his friend in the tomb. As Augustine says, that he can raise to life even one who is putrid and hath been four days dead. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And where sin abounded, grace also did superabound. Jesus' resolve is that this moment is for the glory of God. First he says, roll the stone away and... Martha says, Lord, if you roll that stone away, there's going to be the stench of death. And Jesus' resolve is even greater. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus knows exactly what he's about to do and has known it from before they ever journeyed to the tomb of Lazarus. Recall again his words to his disciples at the beginning of this text. Uh, John 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, that is, saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not, uh, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Lazarus did die. But Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples about it, remember at the beginning, says, our friend is what? Asleep. He's asleep. That is Christian code word for this ain't it. <laughs> He's going to be raised. And so we here come to this fruition of the very statement that Jesus makes. 
And now Jesus has an interaction with his father that brings to the fore his intention. Look at verses 41 and 42. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. What is the purpose of all of this? Remember, the purpose of the Gospel of John that John gives us at the end is that he puts forth these seven signs, these seven miracles of Jesus, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord, the, the, the Christ. It is for this purpose, that the people who hear him now speaking with his Father might know that he and his Father are one. They are one in will and one in purpose, and that the Father did indeed send the Son. This is an outworking in space and time of the eternal relations of the Father and the Son. The Son, as we've been studying on Equip Hour on Sunday mornings afterwards here, I'd encourage you to come to that. The Son is eternally generated from the essence of the Father. And so it is the Son who is sent, not the Father who is sent, not the Spirit who is sent as the Son, but the Spirit who is sent from the Father and the Son later. But it is, in this instance, the Son who is sent. They are of one mind eternally. Therefore, the way Jesus describes this is the Father always hears the Son. Just as earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus only does what He sees the Father doing and proclaims that He and the Father are what? Are one. They are one essence, though distinct in their relations. The Father is the Father, the Son is Son, but they are in essence God. And so the incarnation is the reality of the Son who is at the side of the Father eternally being sent into the... uh, He's at the uh, the side of the Father eternally being sent into the world to exercise His will as one with the Father and yet His humanity submitting to the will of the Father in order to bring glory to God and to rescue the sons and daughters of Adam. And in this moment of the mission, it culminates in the raising of Lazarus when... As uh, it says in verse 43, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Dr. Tony Evans says, if he had just said come out, all of them would have been raised. All of the dead. So he has to be very specific. Lazarus, come out. And notice what John says here in verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. The man who had died. This man was dead. He wasn't mostly dead, nod to Miracle Max of the Princess Bride. No, he was dead, dead. So dead he had the stench of death. His relatives knew he was dead. The townspeople knew he was dead. Jesus knew he was dead. Their noses told them he has been dead for four days. Yet the man who had died came out when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Who has the power to raise the dead but God? The man who died came out and his hands and feet were bound like, guess what? A dead man. His face was wrapped in cloth like a dead man. Jesus tells him at the end of verse 44 to unbind him. Why? Because he is wrapped up like a man who is really dead. 
This is the power of God expressed in the incarnated eternal son who simply says, Lazarus come out and the dead are made alive. This is, of course, in some senses, a foretaste of Jesus' own resurrection, except, except Jesus is the first fruits of a different kind of resurrection because Jesus never dies again. We've said it many times before, poor Lazarus, he had to experience life or death twice and life twice. Jesus, the King of glory, humbled in humanity, rather than being seated upon a throne, is seated upon a, a donkey. Even as these events, the resurrection of Lazarus, the healing of the lame, the healing of the blind man, are reverberating in the minds of those who are laying down those palm fronds in, in the street for him to march across on that donkey. In the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, 9, um, he is... The king of the universe who has done these things. And it is merely days after that that those who welcomed him as king yell, crucify him, crucify him. And yet Jesus shows forth his humanity and his divinity at once in this moment. And speaks of his eternal relationship with the Father. And the reason for it being the glory of God. And so what is the response? This is what Jesus has said is the purpose, is the glory of God. So what is the response of the crowd? Look at verses 45 and 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some believe and some retreat. Some believe and some retreat. Some believe there are those who witness what Jesus has done and they believe in him. Now, we have seen in the past where there is a kind of a miracle-only faith that, that people believe in him because they believe in what, they can do, what he can do for them. Perhaps that is the case here. Or perhaps they truly believe in who he says he is. Or maybe, as is often the case, there's a mixture of the two. Some believe, though, it says in the text. Others, though, retreat. There are those who retreat back to the Pharisees to tell them what has happened. And this sets off a chain of events which eventually leads to Jesus' trial and death. These retreaters aren't new covenant go-and-tellers. They are religious tattletalers. And yet, in God's providence and His plan, this is the way it works out for Jesus to be put to death. We think of Peter's words in Acts chapter 2. Those who intended to do harm, they are held responsible for that, but it is according to God's plan that Jesus was placed upon the cross. Therefore, as we view this event and See that Jesus intends it for the glory of God. We must not only look at the response of the crowd, but also ask, what is our response to this? What is your response to this event? This is the Lord of Palm Sunday who is lauded by people and then by the same ones crucified. Is it wonder and awe as you hear this this morning? Or is it dismay at the rubes who sit around you in this congregation and would believe such things? 
Have you believed? Are you one who has turned from your sin and trusted in Christ? Jesus is eternally God, and in the incarnation, he puts on humanity, which he displays here. And it is in this one person with two natures who is placed upon the tree for sinners like you and me. Of this passage, Augustine says, Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the tomb. Then he says this, May his groaning have thee also for its object, if thou wouldest re-enter into life. Every man who lies in that dire immoral condition has it said to him, He cometh to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone had been laid upon it. Dead under that stone, guilty under the law. That is you today, if you have not turned to Christ, as dead spiritually as Lazarus was physically. Dead under the law. And I do not have the power of God to call you unto life, but I do have the burden of ministry to call you to believe on his name, and then he and his grace will resurrect you. So I plead with you today, trust in Christ. If you are one who is in Christ, be reminded of your resurrection hope this morning and rejoice. You have indeed seen the glory of God in your spiritual resurrection and you will see his glory on full display in the day of your final and physical resurrection when on that day we will see him as he is and we will be like him. Let us rejoice in that coming day, dear ones. Let us, what does John say after he says that in First John? He says, those who have this hope do what? Purify themselves. Let us live as if the day of his glorious return is today. Let us live purely in light of that. We have been spiritually resurrected, brothers and sisters, and we rejoice in that. And then we are to live our lives as if that is true. Guess what? Because it is. Take this hope to heart. And then lovingly and joyfully come alongside of others in this local assembly And walk with them as they need reminding. We all need this reminding, don't we? We need to be in each other's lives. We can come and gather together on a Sunday morning and rejoice together as we hear the songs sung and we sing together and we we rejoice in truth of of the scriptures read and preached. But we need this throughout our lives together as we live as a local assembly. Who are you asking to build into your life and remind you of these truths? And who are you offering to build into their life and say, brother, sister, chin up. Our Lord is the resurrection and the life. Would you pray with me? Lord, what a joy it is to indeed gather together to worship you, our great triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is by your Spirit Indeed, that we cry out to you as our Father in moments of grief, in moments of dismay, in moments of joy, in moments of suffering. We recall that this is not it. The great resurrection hope of the Lord Jesus Christ as minimally, it's hard to say that, displayed in Lazarus, but maximally displayed in the resurrection of you, Lord Jesus. 
refresh our hearts anew this morning with that truth. Let our faith be strengthened by that, Lord. Let let the fears be set aside and let our faith be strengthened by the resurrection, even as we head into this holy week and consider the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ next Sunday together. And though the world may not recognize you as the king, it will someday, and we do right now. We praise you, King Jesus. Pray for those who do not know you, Lord, this morning that may be in our midst, that they would come to saving faith of you, that you would make them alive unto salvation, Lord, giving them faith and repentance so that they might turn from their sin and trust in you alone and help the rest of us to encourage each other while it's still called today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.